I am quite confident that we will, number one, do very little about eradicating sin from our lives, one. Number two, we'll do very little about winning our friends and kinsmen from sin. And number three, we will have grave difficulty appreciating the cross of Christ. There's three results unless we understand the true nature of sin. Tonight, the true nature of sin. If I were to give this another caption, it simply would be this. What the prodigal learned in the far country. I am going to presuppose tonight that everybody in this audience has a ready recollection of the parable of the prodigal son given to us in the book of Luke, chapter 15. The story of the boy that came to his father and said, Give me the portion of good that falleth to me. And since nobody serves God by coercion, the parable says the father gave his portion to him. And he took his journey into a far country, says the text, and wasted his substance and arrived his living. Ultimately, having lost all, he went and joined himself to a man of the country who sent him to feed swine. And while there, he said, many of my father's servants have bread enough and to spare, and here I perish. And thus he resolved, I will arise and go home. And when he was yet a great way off, the father saw him, recognizing the swing of his step and the lines of his body, went out to greet him and embraced him and put a ring on his finger and a robe on his back and said, Kill the fatted calf, for this my son was dead and he's alive and he's lost and he's found. And thus we have in capsule form the story of the prodigal son. But while there in the far country, what did the prodigal learn? I suggest to you, first of all, that the prodigal learned in the far country that sin is divisive. Sin divided him from his father. And as sin divided him from his father, so will it do to man today. That's why the majestic prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated between you and your God, and your iniquities have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin will divide a man from his God. That's why then the book of Ephesians 2 and verse 13 says, And ye who sometimes were far off, that's division, are made nigh, he says, and that by the blood of Christ. The Bible fixes the sinner as being estranged, estranged from God. That's why James 4 and 4 says, You adulterers with an adulteress, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So sin divides a man from his God. Now when we understand that, we can appreciate why the Bible pictures the sinner as it does. For example, 1 John chapter 1, 6 through 8 says that God is light. God is light. But since the sinner is estranged from God, then what does the Bible say about his state? He's dwelling in darkness. Colossians 1, 13, 14 says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath transited us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Secondly, since the God and his Son are the source of life, Colossians chapter 3 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. About verse 5. But since the sinner is estranged from God and Christ, no wonder the Bible says he's dead. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. Now, can you imagine a plight worse than that? Spiritually dead 
and then dwelling in a state of darkness and yet that's the flight of the sinner. Why? Because as long as he's in sin, he's estranged from God. But not only will sin divide a man from his God, sin will also divide a man from his brethren. That's why we read in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6, And now I command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which ye have received of us. That text is simply saying that a brother in Christ can so sin, that is sin to such an extent, that after all efforts to seek to reclaim him back to duty, have gone unheeded, that the church of the Lord has no alternative except to withdraw its fellowship from him. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that fellowship that is withdrawn is of such a nature that the brethren cannot even enjoy a common meal with him. Brother James D. Willifer tells the story of a gospel preacher, I believe, in Nashville, Tennessee, that uh, went by daily on his uh, walk to his office by a pharmacy. And the pharmacy was operated by a member of the church, and just daily he made it a practice to stop by and have a little refreshment with him, a Coke or a cup of coffee, and uh, then go on his way. But little by little, this member of the church apostatized and totally fell from grace. And all efforts to reclaim him went to no avail, and the brethren had to withdraw fellowship from him. The very next morning, Monday morning, the preacher walked by the pharmacy and did not go in for the coke. Tuesday morning he came by and the pharmacy was waiting for him. And he said, I missed you yesterday. You didn't come in. And the preacher said to him kindly but plainly, he said, I'm so sorry. But he said, I'll never be able to drink a Coke with you. I'll never be able to drink a cup of coffee with you. As long as you remain in that state. You know you haven't been living right. You tried to reclaim you. Yesterday, discipline was exercised. And 1 Corinthians 5 says we can't eat with such an one. And as much as I'd like to, I'll never be able to drink a cup of coffee with you. In just a very few days, that brother was restored. You can sin to the extent that you've divided yourself from your brethren to where they can't even sit down and eat a common meal. Someone says, I, don't believe I heard a lady say in a Bible class when I was a child, and we were studying, the church was studying discipline. And these points were kind of pointed out. Some woman back in the audience says, I don't believe that. Well, you just have to talk to the Lord. That's what he taught. Sin, friends, friends, sin is not something you pass by lightly. Sin is a such an entity that you even forfeit your right to have a common meal with your brethren. When you become the object of disciplinary action, Sin then divides a man from God, divides a man from his brethren. But then sin also will divide a man from his family. It divided a lot from his. And it can happen in the hearts and lives of men and women and boys and girls today. A number of years ago, my family and I went down to St. Petersburg, Florida for a series of meetings. It just so happened that my father was serving as the local evangelist of the church at that time. And after we had extended the customary greetings, my dad said, he said, do you remember when you were here before? I said, yes. He said, do you remember? And he called a man by name. And I said, oh, yes. He said, we've had a tragedy in this church. And here's the story. This young man had quit a good job, had enrolled in one of our Christian colleges, and had studied to better prepare himself to preach. Had gone back down into that area, had faithfully served the Lord. 
and served as a deacon in the local congregation there, but little by little, he fell from one level of depravity to another until he was serving as a bartender in one of the taverns in that area of the state of Florida. And uh, his, he and his wife became estranged only to be reconciled, estranged only to be reconciled. And all during this particular problem, she never ceased to be the object of affection of his folks. She had remained faithful to the church in spite of his ungodliness. And they knew wherein the trouble uh, was to be found. It was in his lifestyle. Well, during one of these periods of estrangement, just before that meeting began, she got off of work one evening, put their three precious children into the car, and started for the state of Illinois. Driving all night long, at about five o'clock the next morning, apparently going to sleep at the wheel, she veered into the path of an oncoming automobile near Decatur in your state. And she and all three of those children were slain at one time. My father's telephone rang off of the wall the first two days of that meeting, and I can still hear him saying, I'll try. He'd leave the house and wouldn't say a word, just leave the house. He'd come back about 15 or 20 minutes, and the phone would ring again. He said, they won't let me. And he'd listen. He'd say, well, I'll try that. He'd leave. He'd come back after a while, the telephone would ring, and he'd say, they won't let me. And what was happening on the other end of the line was this. The father of those three precious children and the husband of the woman was having his daddy or one of his brothers to call my daddy, trying to get into the house, but the law enforcement men would not let him. And they said, well, try this avenue. And he tried, and they wouldn't let him. They wanted into the house for this reason. They said, Brother Winkler, he can't stand the thought of burying her without the wedding band. And they were trying to get the band to fly left to Illinois. But on the appointed morn, the memorial service was held for that mother and the three children. And they took her out into the adjacent cemetery and buried them in graves six feet deep and three feet wide. And if that man lives to be a hundred years old, he'll live and die with a broken heart. Sam will divide you from your family. Don't you ever forget that. Not me. That's what he used to say. Sin is of such a nature that it will get a hold of you and you'll wonder, how did I ever get in this state? And he'll die with a broken heart. Why? Sin divided him with the nearest and dearest upon earth to them. But sin will divide you fourthly from your better self. I believe that Paul graphically illustrates that in the book of Romans chapter 7. Whenever he penned these words, he says, That that I would not do, what? That do I. That that I would do, what? That do I not. Now, everybody in this audience can relate to that. How many times have we said, I knew better, but went right ahead and did it? How many times have people said, I know I should have done that. I don't know why I didn't. You see, that that I would not do, that do I. That that I would do, that do I not. Now, when Paul gets through discussing that, he concludes it by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. What's Paul saying? I'm divided from me. I'm divided from my better self. Paul says it in the book of Galatians chapter 5 in these terms. He says, There's a civil war existing in the hearts of all men between the flesh and the spirit. When the flesh wins the victory and we succumb to its temptations, it is then we've gone against our better self, and whenever that occurs, it breaks our hearts and bites our consciences and stuffs 
stuffs our pillows with thorns at night. Have you ever got to where you couldn't live with yourself? Where your conscience just bit you and your heart broke within you. You couldn't sleep at night. What's happened? Sins divided you from your better self. Down in the southern part of our state, I visited a family now, a number of years ago, 15 to 20 years ago. And I saw an example of human wretchedness that was very graphic but tragic. This young man was 18 years old, very athletic, wore a 17 and one-half neck shirt. Just, he was a star halfback on a quadruple A high school football team. Just a very fine young uh, athlete. Near graduation, his senior year, he and some of his friends went to an adjacent town and they began to visit one tavern after another. And finally, in the late afternoon, they were under the influence, fairly well, of alcohol. They were going down a street and they passed the juncture of an alley that came into the street. And one of the boys said, as they got there, seeing a man walking down the sidewalk, let's stop and roll him. Now, roll him simply means knock him in the head and steal his money. And that's exactly what they did. The thousand wonders they hadn't killed him. The man had been wounded in the war and had a steel plate in his cranium. Thousand wonders they hadn't killed him. But that they did. The very next morning, when the wee hours of the morning, this young man's father was disturbed by a knock at the door. And he went to the door, and there was a law enforcement man. And they said, we've come to book your son for assault and robbery. And I was there visiting that home between the time that he was booked and the time he was to stand trial with a penitentiary sentence staring him in the face. And his mother said, he just sits around the house. And she says, totally unprovoked, he just starts crying. You know what was wrong with him? He was eating out from within. I looked at his fingernails. He had bitten his nails as far as they could be bitten, and I'm literally telling you the truth. In a couple of places, places he had gnawed his leg. He couldn't live with self. That's what sin will do to you. Sin will divide you from God. It will divide you from your brethren. It will divide you from your family. And it will divide you from you, even to where you have to turn your head when you walk by a mirror to where you don't have any trace of self-respect whatsoever. Sin's devices. That's what the prodigal learned in the far country. Sin had done what? Divided him from his father. So he learned in the far country what? Sin's devices. But then did that secondly. He also learned in the far country that sin is very deceptive. Ah, oh, yes, home carried with it restraint. So he sought the far country. But he hadn't any longer gotten out of the far country to what happened. Well, where was the liberty he sought? It's been turned into servitude. Where was the happiness that he sought? It's been turned into misery. Where was the plenty he thought would be his? It's been turned into poverty. So what's happened? Oh, now he's learned that sin is a deceptive entity. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, we read, But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened. Here it is. Through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will deceive you. It will deceive you. How many of our nation, oh, it's so tragic, makes your heart bleed. How many in our society today are now such tragic examples of human dissipation because they have become addicts? Oh, but when they were first introduced to it, what? It will give you a sense of euphoria. It will give you pleasure and joy. You'll forget everything bad and it'll all be good. 
Ah, uh, but now they're living a nightmare. Living a nightmare. In New York City today, and in every other major metropolitan area of our given day, in our given country, you know what's happened today? He got up. And the first thought that came into his mind was one of these. What can I steal to have money wherewith to buy it, and where can I go to purchase it? That's the heroin addict. Do you think he's happy? He is in utter misery. I preached for 13 years for the Glen Garden Church in Fort Worth, and you could pick up a rock and hit the federal correctional institution, a federal prison. Only two in the United States like it. And it majored in the caring for prisoners who have alcohol and drug-related problems and crimes that grew out of it. I can't describe to you what you could see out there. But my point is, when they were first introduced to it, they were promised what? Happiness and pleasure, euphoria. But oh, how they were deceived. Sin is deceptive. When I was working with the uh, Airline Drive Church in Bozeman City, Louisiana, one of the elders myself went out to visit a family where the man had ceased coming to church. We got out there and began to visit with him, and we sought to bring the conversation around to the subject of the church and how we desired so much for him to come back home. And every time we get to that subject, he'd switch the subject. He'd say, let me show you these guns. He'd go over his gun cabinet and pull out one. We'd observe that kindly with him, and we'd get around to it. He'd say, let me show you this over here. He said, I... And we left there, never able to get around to that subject. On the way home, this elder said something to me that I never will forget. He said, Brother Winkler, I've known that man ever since he was a little boy about so high. He said, he grew up out here in the eastern part of the state of Texas, and he said he grew up, uh, didn't have much. And he said he moved over here in the street port in Bossier, and he said the bright lights of the city got in his eyes. You know what he was telling me? He got deceived. That's what sin will do to you. It will utterly deceive you. So don't be deceived by Satan. Now, the prodigal found that out. He found out that sin's divisive. He found out that sin is deceptive. But again, what did the prodigal discover in the far country? He also found how disgracing sin can be. I'm confident by way of the Lord, uh, working with the Jewish populace of his day and so on, that uh, this was a Jewish boy uh, commonly conceived in the parable. But yet in the parable, what's this Jewish boy sent to do? He's sent to feed swine. Well, that was one of the unclean animals with which the Jews had nothing to do. But he spent, sent to feed these animals. Nothing could have been more distasteful. Nothing could have been more disgraceful. Nothing could have been more reproachful than for a Jewish boy to have to feed swine. So he found out in the far country what? That sin is a very disgracing entity. And so it is today. Sin is disgracing. In the book, disgraceful. In the book of Philippians, Psalms 1 and verse 1, uh, through verse 5, you're going to find this statement. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. I used to read that when I was a child. One of the first uh, chapters I ever memorized in the Bible. And I would read that and it would say, The, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. It bothers me. I'd say, well, I thought the Bible said everybody's going to stand in the judgment. Well, I still believe that. And I knew that, that I had a little problem there, but I still believed. I said, one day I'll work that out. And I'm so grateful that one day I came across the information that assisted. 
The word stand of Ephesus is from a Hebrew word which simply means to hang the head. It is simply saying that on the great and final day of judgment that the ungodly will not stand in the judgment. In other words, stand the erect and stand confident. No, but they'll stand there with their heads having fallen on their bosoms. Now you tell me when a man won't look you in the eye. When does a man drop his head on his bosom and no longer look? It's when he's utterly ashamed of his behavior. Utterly ashamed. Sin's disgracing. Sin will disgrace the nation. Did you know that America is largely becoming the laughing stock of the world internationally? Why? We claim to be a God-believing nation. We claim to believe that we are a Bible-believing nation. And yet America leads infidelic France even in divorce. Sin is disgracing our nation. Not only that, but sin will disgrace the city. It will disgrace the city. What pops into your mind when I say the following? Las Vegas. You know what popped into your mind? Something on the wrong side of the ledger. Something on the wrong side. Years ago, I came to Alabama to hold a series of meetings, went back home. Somebody said, where have you been, Brother Winkler? I said, Phoenix City, Alabama. It always provoked a chuckle. Many of you remember Phoenix City in days gone by. Many states have a situation like that. So nowhere at all is Alabama anywhere at all peculiar to that situation. Always would provoke a chuckle. They said, Phoenix City, you admit it. The vice town, Phoenix City? I said, Phoenix City. He said, what are you? I said, God has a church there. Nobody ever thought about God having a church in Phoenix City, but he had a good one. But you see what sin had done to the town? Disgraced it. Sin disgraces a nation. It disgraces a town. It will disgrace a community. I was asked when I was just a real young preacher, still a student at Montgomery Bible College, now Alabama Christian. I was asked, uh, well, where are you preaching? I was going up into Walker County to preach every Lord's Day. And I gave a certain location there where I was going. They said, you mean that one down in B-10? I said, yes, sir. They said, you don't mean you're going down to B-10 to preach? I said, yeah. They said, well, man, that's where all the wildcat whiskey this whole county is made. And I knew that. But nobody ever thought that in that area of the county that God had a church. But see what sin had done? It had disgraced that community. It will disgrace a family. Would you want the last name Capone? Would you want the last name Dillinger? No, why? Because, because of sin, that family name has been and has become a reproach. It will do that. It will bring shame upon one's family. I recall in the incident that I mentioned a moment ago about the young man that uh, was eating out from within. I was talking with some friends. And they said, you know what the most tragic thing about this whole thing is? They said he's got a little sister that goes to high school, too. And she said, they said, she's got to go out there. And all the little students are going to say, did you read the front page? And what happened to? That's her brother. They said his daddy's going to go out to the refinery to work. And whenever they are eating lunch, he said, all the fellows will get around and open up their lunch boxes. And they'll say, say, did you see on the front page what happened to that boy? 
And both the father and the daughter do going to have to do what? Bear the shame of that serious infraction of divine and civil law. See what sin did? Sin brought disgrace on that family. Sin, ladies and gentlemen, is divisive. Sin is deceptive, and sin is disgracing. The prodigal found that out in the far country, but add to that. The prodigal also discovered in the far country that sin is a principle that develops and grows. You see, when the father gave the portion of goods that fell to him, he did not pick up those goods and immediately transfer himself into the far country. No. The Bible says he took his journey into the far country. In other words, he got over there step by step. And so it is with sin. Sin is a developing entity. We seldom jump from one state over here to a, an abject state of depravity. But rather, we simply progress little by little until ultimately find ourselves in such a terrible, terrible place. That's why, for example, Isaiah 30 and 1 talks about adding sin to sin. That's why James 1, 13 through 15 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, he is tempted to God, for God cannot uh, be tempted, neither tempted he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and task, and lust when it has conceived, bring it forth sin, and sin when it has finished, bring it forth death. See that progression? What about Joshua chapter 6 about the story of Achan? Achan says, I saw, I coveted, I took, I died. That's the progression of sin. What about Simon Peter? He said, I'll never deny these, except one overconfidence. Then what? The Lord's taken away for trial, but what about Peter? Well, he follows, but afar off. That's desertion. Then what? The Lord's being tried, and where's Peter? Out here warming by the devil's fire. And so he's now fraternizing with the enemy. Then they began to say, if I was one of his, he says, oh, no, I'm not one. Now what you're doing, lying. They say, oh, but yes, your speech bereath thee. And then he began to deny with an oath. Now what? He's guilty of perjury. So if Peter were here tonight, he would say, when you sin once, it's easier to sin twice than many more times. In fact, I doubt seriously if a man ever sins one time. If a man, for example, forsakes the service, is that sin number one? Sin number two, he's had a bad influence upon the community. Sin number three, he's had a bad influence upon his family. Sin number four, he's hurt the local church of which he's a member. Sin number five, you go and talk to him about it. Seldom ever is he honest enough to tell you why he wasn't there. He'll try to lie about it. When you sin once, usually you'll sin many times. Sin is an entity that grows and develops. That's why it's got to be nipped in the bud. I'm told that where the Mississippi River begins, you can step across it. But if you've ever been down to the southern part of the city of Louisiana where the Mississippi empties into the Gulf of Mexico, you know how large that body of water has become. It's miles across the Mississippi River. I've stood many times at the Continental Divide in the state of Colorado and have seen the bronze plaques that are there for your reading to where they say, when a drop of water falls on this point, half of it flows to the Atlantic and the other half flows to the Pacific because of the watering systems that spring from that point. Ever so small right there, but ultimately it's contributed to the Atlantic Ocean. Sin starts ever so insignificantly, but then it grows and grows until it engulfs and develops the whole personality. It can grow to the extent that it will render you insensitive to the impulses for right and for good. I remember when I was a boy growing up that I never did get to take my shoes off until the month of May. Oh, I wanted to. A long time before that, my mama says, you do that, you take cold. You've got to wait until May. So there was a certain day in May, she'd say, well, you can in a little while. 
And I take those shoes off, and I can still remember trying to walk the first day I took my shoes off. I tell you, I just couldn't hardly walk across that gravel. It tear me up. But little by little, I began to walk on that gravel, and by the end of the summer, I tell you, you could run across one of those asphalt roads, and his sparks would fly. My brother and I used to sit out on the back step and take a pen and see how far you could jam it up your foot before you'd reach something that really had any sensitivity to it. Skin half a quarter of an inch thick, I do believe. What had happened? The repetitious use of exposure to that flesh to these influences had little by little toughened. That's what sin will do. It will toughen your conscience and it will toughen your heart until finally it will have no effect. For example, when we preached on the judgment this morning, did that do anything to you? If it didn't, you better begin to really take some serious thought, friend. You may be further along than you thought you were. Friends, let me tell you something. If you lose your soul, you done lost it all. You only got 10,000 days left, then what? We had better begin to be very serious about life. We're here for one purpose. You know what it is? Not to have a good time, but to prepare for eternity. And we can have a wonderful time doing that, incidentally. I'm not in any way at all trying to talk about that we can't have legitimate happiness. And I'm here to say we need to make very sure that we're living on the right side of the ledger. Sin, then, is a principle that develops to where it can even engulf the entire personality. And that's what the prodigal found out in the far country. He found out what it developed. I, how did I get here? He got there step by step. But in the far country, the prodigal also discovered that sin is destructive. God never called him the prodigal. That's not in the text. But he earned the title. You know why? The word prodigal means wasteful. And he wasted his living. And right is living. And thus he earned the title, the prodigal. Sin will waste you away. It will destroy your talent. It will destroy time. It will destroy your soul. He found that out. And add to that, that in the far country he also discovered that sin is so dominating and enslaving. Listen to these words. He would adjoin himself to a man of that country who sat He's under the domination, the direction of others now. Oh, where was that freedom he sought? He found out that sin is a very enslaving and dominating force, and so it is. In John 8 and 34 we read, He that committeth sin is the servant of sin. The Greek text simply says, He's become the bond servant, bond slave, slave would be a, even a better rendering. He's a slave of sin. Romans 6, 16 through 18 says, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves service to obey his servants you are to whom you obey? whether of sin of the death or obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. See, servants are sin, sin and slave. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free, you became the servants of righteousness. And so there we have sin enslaves. And sin still enslaves mankind. I've known man that became enslaved to tobacco. I've heard men say, I can't give it up. I've tried a thousand. I can't give it up. They're enslaved to that given practice. I have no men that became enslaved to alcohol and to every waking moment of the day. They had to have that running and coursing through their bloodstream. I have known some that were enslaved to other types of addiction, to drugs. I had a young father come into my office in Fort Worth several years ago, grew up on the home church there, married one of the deacon's daughters, and had better not training classes, but I'll tell you still, he sunk again, as I said a while ago, from one level right on down. Came into my office, said, Brother Winkle, i got to talk to you. I said, fine, yes. 
and said something to me that was like sticking a hot iron in my heart. He said, Brother Winkler, he said, my head craves glue like your stomach craves food. He'd become a glue sniffer. And that little boy growing up there and I taught him in class. He likes to kill him. He has already made shipwreck of his life. He's made shipwreck of his family, not even living with his family. He become an addict. He become enslaved to that practice. There are others that become enslaved to an unlawful marriage. Matthew 19, 9 says that there is only one reason why a person can put away their marital companion and ever contract a second marriage. And that's because the companion that has been put away has been guilty of breaking the marriage vows. And yet today there, there are many people that find themselves in a second, third gate, sometimes even more so. Marriages where the former marriages were not dissolved upon that basis. And they began to study Matthew chapter 19, 9, and their heart breaks, and their conscience begins to bite them. And they began to say, what can I do? And whenever it's pointed out that, they can be forgiven if they will repent. But repentance simply means that you've got to quit doing what's wrong. And if you're living in adultery, you've got to quit that. Well, how do you quit it? You simply extricate yourself, which means remove yourself out of that particular relationship. And many times they said, I see that, I see that, but I can't. What's happened? They become enslaved to that unlawful relationship. Friends, sins, black. When, oh, when will we understand that when you when you in a way at all give credence to sin, you're going to have to reap the whirlwind. And I repeat, a man will do little about extricating himself from it, eradicating it from his life, trying to save others from it. And even will he not appreciate Calvary? Because Calvary was because of sin until we understand what sin's all about. Sin is a tragic intimacy. And it will dominate. And then add to that sin will bring death. The eagle was soaring so majestically. Majestically in the sky, the hunter was watching. When all of a sudden, the bird, mighty as it was, just plunged near his feet dead. It was so strange. He decided to investigate. Wet picked up the carcass of the fowl, began to investigate, running his fingers through the feathers, only to ascertain that a little small, viperous, poisonous snake had made its way up into the feathers of the majestic fowl, coiled itself around its neck, planted its fangs into the body of the bird, and when enough poison had been secreted, there was no alternate. The bird died. Sin brings death. That's why Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That's why Romans 6.23 says, The wage of sin is death. That's why James 1.13-15 says, In sin, when it hath finished, bring it forth death. What did the prodigal find out in the far country? He found out that sin brought death. That's why when he returned, the father said, This my son was dead, but he's alive again. Yes, what did the prodigal find and discover in the far country? He discovered that sin's devices. He discovered that sin is deceptive. He discovered that sin is disgraceful. He discovered that sin develops. He discovered that sin is destructive. He discovered that sin is dominating. And he discovered that sin will bring death. 
As it happened then, so it can happen now. And that being true, I ask tonight, is there sin in your life to the extent that a public response to this invitation would take care of the problem? It may be that you've never had your sins remitted, and the great need of your life is to be baptized for remission of sins, Acts 2.38, upon your penitent faith, Acts 2.36-37. It may be that you once obeyed that and sang with others, Oh, happy day, when Jesus washed my sins away. But little by little, sins invaded your life to where you've either become world in your life or you've been spasmodic in your attendance. And when brethren know of your delinquency, they have a right to know of your repentance. And therefore, you need restoration tonight. We're going to sing the great hymn that has been announced tonight. And as we sing this song that teaches us in song about the great day that's coming, I say in view of that inevitable day, that day of all days, toward which all of us inescapably are marching, how is it in relation to the state of your soul? If you're here and need to respond for any reason, won't you come tonight? We have prayed that you would. We believe you will. And we're looking forward to see you thus do. And that even now, as together, we now stand and we sing.